Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. We have a full lineup for you today. I uh, do want to mention first, though, that Clark Hilton is engineering. James Blend is producing today's program. We're going to talk with Marie Fishpaw momentarily. She's the director of health policy at the Heritage Foundation. Senate Republicans released a new version of their health care bill today. So what are the next steps for the Obamacare repeal process? What does it look like from here? We'll talk with her about all of that. Greg Allen, pastor of Bethany Bible Church and an adjunct professor at Multnomah, is going to join us to talk about what historically has preceded a great awakening and how might we prepare. Uh, we'll talk with uh, Owen Strahan, a theologian from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, offering a response to Eugene Peterson's theological adjustment on homosexuality, which, by the way, he adjusted uh, just earlier today. So he has largely retracted those statements, but we'll talk with the uh, uh, with uh, Eugene P- with uh, Owen Strahan about that um, when he joins us in the five o'clock hour. Also, we'll talk with Liberty McArthur. She's a reporter with the Stream. Uh, she's going to give us an update on the hearing today involving eleven-month-old Charlie Gard. Uh, the judge, as you might recall, said unless there was extraordinary and convincing new evidence that he would uh, uphold the previous decision that would remove. Uh, the life support, uh, the breathing apparatus from this 11-month-old, and he would he would die. So we'll f- find out what happened in the hearing. I know that they held it over to tomorrow, and a decision is expected very, very soon. Uh, in fact, one observer said uh, in the time that it has taken them to make a decision, Charlie Gard could have had the full treatment twice over to see whether or not it would uh, would have helped him. Anyway, we'll talk with her about that. Also, um, we're going to talk about an interview she did with an African national who uh, is in the process of putting together a documentary highlighting the damage that Western-funded abortion industry in Africa has done. So that's uh, that's what we'll be doing throughout the day today. Well, as I mentioned, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell today relaunched his bid to overhaul chunks of Obamacare, not exactly a repeal or a replace, but he unveiled a revised bill that... Um, Uh, With concessions to conservatives and moderates, uh, though key senators have already voiced their opposition. Well, the new plan significantly includes a provision based on a proposal by Senator Ted Cruz, allowing insurers to offer lower cost, bare bones policies. Uh, The Texas Republican said in a written statement he is encouraged that the revised bill ensures consumers have the freedom to choose among more affordable plans that are tailored to their individual health care needs. We're going to talk more about that with Marie Fishpaw when she joins us in our next segment. Also, Americans receiving Social Security benefits in 2018 can expect to see the program's largest payment increase in years. That's according to the trustees report released earlier today. In January, recipients will receive $28 a month um, increase in benefits, which although um, that amounts to just 2.2 percent, is much larger than the 0.3 percent increase in benefits recipients collected this year. In 2016, the program offered no payout at all. The average monthly payout for the program's 61 million beneficiaries is $1,253. Despite the good news, Social Security and Medicare are still dealing with looming cash shortfalls, and Congress doesn't seem all that concerned about dealing with it anytime soon. 
They maintain funds, uh, funding levels will run dry by the mid-2030s, with Medicare's Part A projected to be depleted in 2029, one year later than projected in last year's analysis. If Congress allows either fund to be depleted, millions of Americans living on fixed incomes could face steep cuts in benefits. And in fact, they will face steep cuts in benefits. Neither Social Security nor Medicare faces an immediate crisis, but the trustees warn that the longer Congress waits to address the program's problems, the harder it will be to sustain Social Security and Medicare without significant cuts in benefits, big tax increases, or both. Representative Steve Scalise has been released from the intensive care unit at MedStar Washington Hospital Center, but remains in serious condition, his office uh, confirmed. The Louisiana Republican was one of five people, as you might recall. He was injured last month when a gunman opened fire on a GOP lawmaker's baseball practice. Scalia was shot in the hip, resulting in damage to bone, blood vessels, and internal organs. His condition has been in flux since then, and while he was originally listed as critical, he was released from the ICU and had made progress to being uh, in fair condition. An infection led to his readmittance to the ICU and his being uh, downgraded to serious condition last week. So continue to uh, remember Representative Scalise in your prayer. And former U.S. President Jimmy Carter was hospitalized today in Canada after suffering dehydration while working at a build site for Habitat for Humanity. Habitat for Humanity said in a statement that uh, the president, uh, Carver, Carter, rather, 92, was dehydrated working in hot sun. He was building houses at the site in Winnipeg. Now, he's 92, and so you have to take that into account as well. President Carter told us he is okay and is being taken off site for observation. He encouraged everyone to stay hydrated and keep building, a spokesman for Habitat for Humanity said. The former president was taken to the hospital as a precaution, and his wife, Rosalind, she uh, was by his side. The Carter Center said in a statement, Carter and his wife were in the middle of a week-long project building houses in various Canadian cities. This week's build is the 34th time the Carters have volunteered to build houses for the Atlanta-based charity. In August of 2016, he revealed he was diagnosed with melanoma that had spread to his brain. He announced last May that he no longer needed treatment for the cancer diagnosis, but will resume treatment if necessary. So remember former President Carter in your prayers as well as he's continuing to serve in the organization he founded, Habitat for Humanity, at 92. I hope I'm still out uh, doing stuff like that when I'm 92, if the Lord wills and I live uh, that long. Uh, Well, coming up in just a moment, we're going to talk with Marie Fishpaw. She's the director of health policy at the Heritage Foundation. As you uh, probably know by now, the Senate has released yet another version of the health care Uh, reform bill. It doesn't exactly repeal or replace Obamacare, but it sort of nips at the idea. Uh, Marie Fishpaw is going to tell us uh, a bit more in detail what's included, what's excluded, and whether or not this really uh, hits the mark. What do the next steps for the Obamacare repeal process look like from here? Well, we'll talk about that. Keep in mind that the um, House already passed their version, and there's no question there'll have to be some sort of Um, effort to reconcile the two versions at some point, and that's optimistically assuming the Senate passes a version at all. They postponed their August recess in order to deal with this issue because it really stands as the foundation upon which so many of the other major initiatives they um, have touted and campaigned on uh, rely on. So this this must be done before tax reform, for example, can be done and other uh, issues of uh, priority, at least during the campaign. So We'll continue to follow the story. We'll talk with Maria about um, what's in this one and what uh, what's next. So that's that's our next interview. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show.
We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Senate Republicans released a revised bill to repeal and replace portions of Obamacare today, including a provision similar to one sought by Senator Ted Kennedy that would allow insurers to offer lower cost plans. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell still faces a pretty big challenge to secure enough votes from conservatives and moderates with differing concerns to push the bill through. But here to help us understand what's in it and what's not is Marie Fishpaw. She's the director of health policy at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. First of all, let me ask you to give your general impression of this latest iteration of the Senate version of repeal and replace Obamacare. Sure. So the bill moving through Congress is better than the status quo of leaving Obamacare in place. It's continuing to take steps in the right direction to undo the damage that Obamacare caused in terms of driving up premium costs for insurers and reducing people's access to good plans. Uh, this bill today um, continues to do things, and that such as repealing the mandates um, to buy insurance and giving regulatory authority back to the states to handle their own uh, insurance markets as opposed to federalizing it. So is this um, better than the House version? Is it just better than the previous Senate version? And how likely is this to, to do what's needed for the American people to have the kind of health insurance that, that you know, uh, is affordable uh, but doesn't uh, require the federal government to be too intrusive in the whole process overseeing one-fifth of the U.S. economy. Sure. So the bill does take steps in the right direction. It goes farther than the House bill did to try to undo Obamacare's damage. It contains provisions that should help decrease insurance premiums and make plans more available. What we liked out of the new bill today was new provisions to let people save tax-free for their insurance plans. And we think it's a good incremental move in the right direction. Uh, Senator Cruz, of course, is looking at additional ways to devolve more power back to the state to to take advantage of, of the flexibility they would have to reduce people's premiums. So we think it's a step in the right direction. A step in the right direction, but is it also a missed opportunity? <laughs> well, Regardless of, of this bill and this legislative opportunity, Congress is going to have to pursue additional health reforms. We have many factors that were in play long before Obamacare that Obamacare made a lot worse, and there are additional things we'd like to see them do. One, For example, we, we know that Medicare is facing fiscal challenges, and so there's many things outside the scope of this particular bill, but we do think that this bill, if it's if enacted, would be a step in the right direction. We're talking about the Senate Republicans' Better Care Reconciliation Act of 2017 that would partially repeal and replace Obamacare. Is this, generally speaking, the right approach to have a single piece of legislation that, that does, does away with Obamacare and, and replaces parts that need to be uh, replaced? Or should this be a process that's a bit different in that it takes different elements of uh, health care in America and treats it more thoughtfully? Generally, is this the right approach? Well, we had hoped uh, that Republicans uh, would put forward a full repeal bill the way that they had campaigned on. However, but this is where we are right now, and, and given that the bill does do a lot to undo Obamacare's damage, I think it's a good first step, and we'll probably see many more steps to come to continue to improve our health insurance markets and make sure that Americans can afford the insurance that they want to buy. I know um, one of the more controversial, depending on where you stand on the issue in this uh, this bill, is uh, major changes being made to Medicaid and also uh, significant federal entitlement reform. Talk about those two elements of uh, health care policy that's addressed in this particular version of uh, repeal and replace. 
yes, those Medicaid changes are some of the most significant changes in the bill. Uh, I think it moves the program to a more compassionate footing than it was under Obamacare because it restores the program's original focus on our society's most vulnerable members. So the elderly, disabled, and pregnant women and children in poverty. Under Obamacare, he poured millions of people who are able-bodied, childless, and could work into the program, diverting resources from our most vulnerable. So this bill puts us back on the right track there. And the upside of pursuing these good policy changes is a better fiscal outlook for our country overall. Now, in terms of the states, they're given greater flexibility to manage their own Medicaid programs and, in general, health care in their states. Can you describe a little bit of what that might look like and if this is a a good approach to dealing with uh, a a very large issue in our our country? Yes, the bill does restore the state's uh, long historic role in being the chief uh, regulator and overseer of health insurance. Um, The states have been doing this for decades prior to Obamacare, and we can see the mess that Obamacare made of it in terms of the sharply increasing premiums, uh, plans leaving Throughout counties throughout the nation and general destabilization of the market. So federal government had its shot at this, and I think it's about time to return the authority back to the states who've been handling it much longer. And one of the things that Senator Ted Cruz of Texas has been boasting about is that uh, uh, Mitch McConnell incorporated some of his demands, including his Consumer Freedom Amendment, a proposal that would allow health savings accounts to pay for health care premiums. How important is that to the overall um, reform of health care? I think it's a good it's a good first step. It's a, it's part of a it's a it's a really good step towards helping people be able to buy their health insurance regardless of whether or not they get it from their employer or elsewhere. Um, today, if you buy it through your employer, you get a substantial discount on your taxes um, for doing so. But you're left without that help if you have to buy it on the individual market. So the Le- Democrats and Obamacare solution to this was to ask you to, uh, as a taxpayer, pay more money um, to put people on Medicaid, which is you know the government pro- program we were just speaking about. And with this change that Senator Cruz has fought for, um, it helps. It's going to give people more access to private plans, which provide access to better care. One of the things the uh, new package does um, uh, keep is uh, most of the original uh, bills, uh, Medicaid reductions, and it would retain uh, Obama's tax increases on upper income people, uh, use that revenue to help some at the lower uh, end, lower earners uh, to help them afford coverage. Is is this a good retention of the old plan uh, or was there a better option? Mm-hmm. I think in general, it's disappointing that the Congress has chosen not to follow through on its campaign promise and repeal all of Obamacare. However, given the the path that they took and the the legislative realities that they were facing, the bill they've put together is a good first step at undoing the damage that Obamacare caused to the individual and small group insurance markets. So um, we we know Congress is going to need to keep at it and in terms of doing a better job to to advance health reform. Um, but this is a good first step that should have some significant near term consequences. Now, my understanding is a pair of Republican senators, Lindy, Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, Bill Cassidy of Louisiana, they released their own alternative proposals to repeal Obamacare. Uh, under their plan, federal dollars spent on Obamacare would be uh, block granted to states. The individual and employer mandate would be repealed. Requirements that health insurers would cover pre-existing conditions would be retained. And the Obamacare medical device tax would be eliminated while other uh, taxes would remain. Your thoughts on this alternative uh, proposed by these two senators? Well, anything that goes in the direction of, of rolling back Obamacare, returning authority to the states, 
um, is a step in the right direction. And, and it sounds like that there there is a lot of agreement on those big planks. So the more that people can pull together and get those good ideas in the final Senate package, uh, the better off we'll be. So how likely is the Senate to uh, to pass this legislation? There's been a lot of political wrangling, of course, and we've heard already from some senators uh, suggesting that they, Rand Paul and others, they, they're not prepared to uh, to support this legislation. Are, are we likely to see something before they finally go off on their August recess, you think? Well, the Senate is def- senators are definitely doing their job, taking a hard look at the bill that was just put out today and assessing its impact, which is a, a, a good thing. The, you know, the reason that we need to see legislation pass this Congress is that Obamacare is put our insurance markets in such a, a bad state that we know that without some action, uh, the premiums are going to continue to rise and plans are continuing to leave. So we certainly, I certainly hope that we see Congress pass something to address those issues shortly. Well, we'll certainly continue to follow their uh, activities over the next couple weeks and beyond. And I thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you. Appreciate it. Again, uh, Marie Fishpaw, she's the director of health policy at the Heritage Foundation. Senate Republicans released a new version of their health care bill today. And uh, we wanted to uh, take a, a quick look at what uh, the next steps for the Obamacare repeal process looks like from here and um, whether or not this is likely to be where we, uh, we end up in the next couple of weeks as they have suspended their August recess or at least postponed it uh, for a couple of weeks in order to deal with this issue, uh, upon which many other significant issues hinge. So uh, what happens with this uh, will determine what happens with uh, tax reform and some other major issues that the Republicans have indicated they want to achieve in this first two years. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. When we return, we're going to talk with Pastor Greg Allen. He's from Bethany Bible Church. He recently emailed um, a document that he actually posted on his Facebook page as well, uh, focusing on what precedes a great awakening and how we might prepare for one. So we're going to talk with him about that. Also, in the five o'clock hour, we're going to talk with Owen Strahan. He's a Midwest Baptist Theological Seminary. He offers a response to Eugene Peterson's theological adjustment on homosexuality that has been readjusted with a retraction of a sort. So we'll talk with him about that in the five o'clock hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 34 minutes after four o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, I spend most of my days reading headlines and uh, trying to trace what's happening in the world around us and then to choose a few of those things to talk about here on the program. But I'm always encouraged to know that there are some in our community who take very seriously um, the Great Commission, who take very seriously the access that we've been granted to the throne of grace and have been praying fervently and regularly for a revival, for a spiritual awakening in our country. And one of them is Pastor Greg Allen. He is the pastor at Bethany Bible Church. And from time to time, he will send me bits and pieces of information that he's collected. He's always posting on his Facebook page things that are edifying and challenge us as followers of Christ. Uh, to um, to look to those higher things to which we are called. And I've asked him to join us here today uh, after he sent me, um, uh, uh, I'm not even sure, an email, I guess, uh, that was titled Patterns of Spiritual Renewal. And I thought it was uh, very interesting and wanted to talk with him about that. And he graciously consented to join us today to do just that. Pastor Greg, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me on. I know a lot of people will be encouraged to learn about your uh, consistent and others as well. But it's it's nice to put a name and a face and a place to um, to this effort to really 
uh, fervently prayerful, pray for revival, to pray for an awakening, for a deepening of the, uh, the, the church's impact on the culture. Talk a little bit about your commitment to and your uh, constant cry for, for there to be a move of God in our country. Well, this is something I suppose that happened uh, in me a couple of years back. Really, it has its roots a few years back. Actually, I think it began for me when I was preaching a sermon once from Nehemiah chapter 8 and, and, verse, and chapter 9. And both of them really highlight uh, a clear example of an awakening, a revival among God's people. And I was fascinated by what I read there. I was fascinated by how the key to it seemed to be the preaching of the word of truth. And the people of Israel were brought out of a very disastrous time in their history and a, and a, a true spiritual awakening by the preaching of the word. And you read in chapter 9 a tremendous prayer of repentance uh, and renewal. And as I began to, I guess I was bitten by the bug at that point, and I began to do some personal reading. I'm by no means an expert on the subject, but uh, more of a, a passionate hobbyist, I guess you'd say, of the subject of revival in the history of the United States and the impact of those revivals in changing the times for an entire generation. It gave me great hope and brought me out of a sense of the helplessness that we sometimes feel, realizing that so long as we are still able to petition our God, um, even if the politics, even if the structure of our government and our culture seems to be falling apart at the seams, uh, we have hope in revival and in a great God. It may sound peculiar to say, but I sometimes believe that God allows the kind of fracturing that we're experiencing now to remind us um, where real authority lies and to whom yeah. we ought to place our confidence. And so I see it as an opportunity. It certainly is concerning, but it's also an opportunity. And it seems to me a, a direct call from God to return to him in ways that perhaps we haven't uh, in the past. Exactly. I feel like the worst thing that we can do is complain, or as I was hearing some people the other day tell me with uh, some of the things that we've been facing in, in the state of Oregon over the past couple of weeks, mm. uh, and especially the passage uh, the other day of HB 330, uh, 3391, uh, and people were just in a state of despair, and they said, I just want to leave. I just want to leave Oregon. It's turning into something I never thought it would be. And I'm appealing to them, no, don't leave. This is that'd be the worst time in the world to leave. This is God's call for us right now, here in this place, to be his instruments of dramatic transformation by the uh, by the uh, God's gracious gift of an awakening through our prayers. Yeah. Let me ask you to clarify a few terms. They might be interchangeable. Spiritual awakening, spiritual renewal, revival. Are they all the same thing or are there differences between a revival and an awakening? Uh, that's a good question, and I'm afraid I don't know. <laughs> I think that uh, an awakening, the, the names kind of help us to understand. An awakening, you're, you're asleep, obviously, and you suddenly awake. And I think of that as a sense in which uh, God graciously slaps his people on the shoulder and wakes them up, and they become more serious about the realities of their faith. A revival, I suppose, focuses on the work of the Holy Spirit. As I've often said, revival implies vival. You know, you have to be alive mm -hmm. for you to be revived. 
And so in a sense, I think those terms uh, speak of, first of all, an awakening of God's people. And in studying the histories of revival, you find that that usually is is the beginning point. It's not that God somehow sends a great uh, evangelistic burst in the unsaved world. What happens first is God wakes his people up. They repent of sin. They become serious and committed and devoted to what God says in his word. They become serious about their union together as the body of Christ. They become serious about the power of the gospel. And it's God's people who become revived, if you will, first. Mm -hmm. And then that creates the atmosphere in which God blesses the gospel that they preach, and that's how people become saved in great numbers. I've often described revival, as I understand it, as to be um, God uh, answering the prayers of his people and giving great success to the gospel so that an entire, uh, an entire generation has changed. But it really begins with God's people. Um, you might remember that wonderful old hymn, uh, Search Me, O God, where there's that great line that says, O Holy Ghost, revival comes from thee. Send the revival and then that great line, start the work yes. in me. Yes. And that's where it has to begin, with God's people. So a revival isn't something we necessarily just declare. On the 31st, we're having a revival. It's a, it's a phrase that's often used to uh, define or, or to declare that we're having a, a group meeting. But the kind of revival you're talking about is an inward work that ultimately has an outward expression. Yes, I'm not sure I'd want to go to a revival that got declared a week beforehand. <laughs> but I'd like to... Uh, think that what happens is it's something completely out of the hands of man, except by prayer, and that God the Holy Spirit gives revival. Um, one of the great uh, preachers that I've grown to love is D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, mm-hmm. who's a, a great preacher from the previous century, and he used to warn, be careful of the idea that in praying for revival, revival will automatically come because you prayed for it. Because that, again, puts the, uh, that puts the emphasis on human effort. But it's our hearts appealing to God, and in His time, in His time schedule, for His purposes, He awakes His people and changes a nation. As I mentioned, you sent me an email. It's titled Patterns mm-hmm. of Spiritual Renewal. And I, I thought it was intriguing because it, it sort of followed a pattern of things that have happened historically that have preceded a great awakening, a spiritual awakening, awakening among God's people. And I thought I wanted it would be interesting to share this with our uh, listeners um, because it, it perhaps helps inspire us to take more seriously our walk with Christ and um, maybe draws us to our knees a bit more than uh, than we might otherwise. Uh, the first point that's made is awakenings are usually preceded by a time of spiritual depression, apathy, gross sin, in which a majority of normal Christians are hardly different from the members of of secular society, and the churches seem to be asleep. Well, <laughs> that sounds all too familiar, but it's not very encouraging. Well, it is in the sense that as God's people begin to realize that this is what the times are looking like, uh, they, be, they, they get on their knees and pray. Um, I, let, me, let me preface this by saying that I had a conversation the other day with someone who, in, in talking about uh, the recent piece of legislation here in the state of Oregon, uh, this is a friend of mine at our church. She was on the verge of tears 
so upset and so brokenhearted over this and felt like, what can we do? What can we do? It's like everything at every turn seems to be on this horrible downward slide. And I think it's that impulse that causes us then to get on our knees. As we start to see not only cultural uh, forces and cultural institutions begin increasingly to degrade and decline and turn into something horrible, and we also see the apathy of God's professing people who seem not only to care, but seem to fit in and seem to behave indistinguishable from from non-believers. And they go down with the culture. That's when I think we start to feel the gentle tap on the shoulder of the Holy Spirit. Pray, pray. And so this idea that uh, awakenings are usually preceded by a time of spiritual depression and apathy and nominal Christianity, I think that's uh, seeing that that's what's happening in our culture right now and recognizing that that's typical in times of great revival should encourage us that this is a time where God may be calling his people to do something. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. We're talking with Pastor Greg Allen from Bethany Bible Church. We're talking about what precedes a great awakening and how we might prepare, how we might begin to pray. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 49 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, continuing my conversation with Pastor Greg Allen from Bethany Bible Church. We're talking about historically what has preceded Great Awakening and how uh, we might be involved in praying for uh, our own time. Um, we mentioned that the first um, the first thing in this list that you provided was that um, we become aware of uh, our ultimate need for our absolute need for God. The second point was an individual or small group of God's people becomes conscious of their sin and backslidden condition and vows to forsake all that is displeasing to God. Yes. What happens, I believe, is that God's people realize that to some degree, this, they are, they're not the uh, thermometer. They're the thermostat of culture. They are the ones that, by their obedience to God, have the power to change culture if they will obey him and follow him and seek him. So uh, a small group of Christians, perhaps even distant from each other, uh, begin to realize something has to change, or individuals or groups of Christians begin to repent of their apathy and they they renew their, their relationship with the Lord and, and they begin to practice the habits that they should, that they've neglected. And... Uh, that becomes the the beginning point. I've often said that uh, they begin to pray for revival, and that prayer for revival is itself the beginning stages of God's gracious answer to their prayer, because they begin to seek Him more now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Next, as some Christians begin to yearn for a manifestation of God's power, a leader or leaders arise with prophetic insight into the causes and remedies of the problems, and a new awareness of the holy and pure character of the Lord is present. So what role does leadership pl- play in this pattern of spiritual renewal? Well, it's a fascinating subject. In the great revivals that we're familiar with in American history, certain individuals stand out. You think of Jonathan Edwards in the first Great Awakening, uh, George Whitfield in the Second Great Awakening. You think of uh, Charles Finney or Isaiah Nettleton uh, in the Third Great Awakening, or what's called the Great Prayer Movement. There was that uh, uh, gentleman Jeremiah Lanfear. 
Uh, you start to see, or in, in recent times, in, uh, in the mid-1940s, uh, Billy Graham, uh, in the Jesus movement, there was uh, uh, Billy Graham and uh, uh, Chuck, uh, oh dear, his name slipped my memory, <laughs> Chuck uh, Smith, Chuck Smith. Mm-hmm. Or you think uh, back in the early turn of the century, 1904-1905, the Great Welsh Revival with Evan Roberts, certain individuals, and it's important to stress that they don't make revival happen. Mm -hmm. They just happen to be raised up by God at a certain time to provide some sort of representative leadership, and God's people begin to follow their pattern. And uh, so in response to God's people, I believe he sometimes provides leadership. And an interesting thing, in the the Third Great Awakening, as it's sometimes called, or the Layman Prayer Revival in the mid-1800s, there really wasn't a leader. It was churches just individually began to pray, just the work of the Holy Spirit gathered them together, and they began these enormous prayer movements that uh, swept the nation. No no particular leader, but it changed our nation's character for 40 years. So sometimes God provides a leader, but the key to it is that he, he sparks his people, he gets his people a praying, and that's what makes it happen. Mm. Uh, the next point was the awakening of Christians occurs and many understand and take part in a higher spiritual life or another way of putting that, maybe a deeper spiritual life. Right. And I think it's important to explain this. Sometimes it's, we start to think, oh, no, he's going to get into something weird here. But not really. I think that the higher life historically that we see really has some some specifics to it. Uh, I would suggest that these are renewals of certain kinds. There's, uh, you know, I, I knew we were going to talk, so I kind of jotted these down. They all start with R. I'm a preacher, so everything starts with the first letter, right? <laughs> but just think of these. There's a renewal of our relationship with Jesus Christ. He's no longer just some abstract uh, entity we, we prayed to receive him one time, and then we said, see you later, we'll, we'll see you in heaven. But there's a renewal of a personal daily relationship of love with him. Uh, He talked about that in John 15, where he talked about abiding in him. Uh, There would be a second, would be to repent from sin. As we draw closer to Jesus, he, he will stop us along the way and say, whoa, stop now, before we go any further. This habit needs to stop in your life, or this practice needs to end, or you need to start doing this that you've been neglecting. And so there's a repentance of sin. And then I would say there's a, a uh, reliance on the Holy Spirit. We quit, we quit trying to do things in our own power. And we recognize that the Lord Jesus Christ, when he ascended to the Father, sent a helper. And we rely on that indwelling uh, helper who is like Jesus himself and mediates his presence to us. We, we begin to trust him and walk in his footsteps, and we, we exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. So there's re- relation with Jesus, repentance of sin, renewal, or reliance on the Holy Spirit. There's reading of God's Word. You get back into the Bible. And it, it's, it's neglected right now. Mm-hmm. How many professing believers all around us are, are neglecting time in God's Word? That needs to be renewed. There needs to be a regular church attendance. 
That's another loss we're suffering, I think, today. More and more people are thinking of some kind of independent uh, lone wolf kind of Christianity where they are not associated with God's people in a regular way. And Jesus uh, called us, uh, he said, I will build my church. Uh, The Bible says we're not to neglect our, our gathering together. And then the third thing, or the last thing I would say is a restoration of relationships. As we're walking with God, as we're following the Holy Spirit, as we're reading His Word, we're attending church, we're, we're growing in our relationship with Jesus, we start to see the areas where there's rifts between God's people. And we, we mend those rifts. We restore those relationships so that we're in unity together. I think that's what it means to uh, partake of that higher spiritual life. Finally, an awakening may be God's means of preparing and strengthening his people. And this is a part that we may not really be uh, ready to embrace for future challenges or trials. We know they're coming. Will we be prepared? Yes. And you look at the history of revivals in our nation. It's really a fascinating thing. I would preface this by saying that the the story of revival in America is really the story of American history. Mm-hmm. Uh, think, for example, the first great awakening in the uh, 1730s to 1780s. That uh, that preceded the War of Independence, which was a, a, a crisis moment in the, the colonies. Uh, the second great awakening, I would say, preceded what Mark Twain referred to as the Gilded Age. And that was a time when people were utterly materialistic and utterly greedy for money. It was times of great success, which was preceded by a terrible time of financial ruin in the 1850s. Uh, but the great Second Great Awakening really came before that great test of, of our country. Uh, the the uh, Third Great Awakening preceded the Civil War, a, a blood, one of the most bloodiest conflict in our history. Uh, we think of uh, the uh, worldwide revival in 1904-1905 preceded World War I. Uh, the uh, mid-century resurgence in the 1940s preceded World War II and the Korean conflict. Uh, I love thinking about the Jesus movement because I still feel like I'm, I, I got my fingers on that one. It's still a reality among us. We still talk to people who are converted to Christ in yeah. the uh, Jesus movement. Uh, well, that was the time of the horrible Vietnam War and the conflict. And then we're facing today the sexual revolution, or you might almost call it uh, sexual fascism that we're facing in our time. Uh, it seems like revivals were given just before a great time of testing in our nation's history to draw people to himself and prepare them, maybe even, if I may dare to put it, uh, prepare them for heaven because it's going to be a great time of testing. And God knows what he's doing in this. He gives those times. But the key in all of it, I believe, is the prayers of his people. We, we look at his word, we look at the times, we get on our knees and we start praying. Now, that's our duty at this point in our history. Well, I appreciate your reminding us of the tremendous opportunity we have, the call that we have, and the preparation that God offers us for whatever may lie ahead. And um, I, I always appreciate your input and what you uh, what you send me by email and remind me um, in terms of how our faith impacts the world around us. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. Well, thank you. And if I may make one final appeal sure. very quickly, this would be the time for your your listeners 
uh, believers across the city of Portland and across the state of Oregon to ask their pastors or their church leaders if they may start a time where they just gather together with God's people on a regular basis and pray for revival. That, I think, would be the great way to put feet on this. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you, Pastor. Appreciate it. Well, God bless you. Thank you. You too. Again, Greg Allen is pastor of Bethany Bible Church. You can hear that he is a pastor at heart. He's also an adjunct professor at, uh, at um, Multnomah. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up next. We're also going to talk in the 5 o'clock hour with Owen Strahan. He's a Midwest uh, Baptist Theological Seminary theologian. He offers a response to Eugene Peterson's theological adjustment on homosexuality, which he later retracted. We're also going to talk with Liberty McArthur. She's a reporter for The Stream. We'll talk about the uh, London High Court case earlier today, the hearing on the Charlie Gard case, as well as the Western's, uh, Western funding of abortion industry in Africa. Africa and the devastation there. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Today we're going to talk with uh, Liberty McArthur. She's a reporter with The Stream. We'll talk about the hearing that was held in London today regarding the future of Charlie Gard. We're also going to talk with her about the uh, uh, the impact of Western-funded abortion um, the industry, Planned Parenthood and, and family planning in Africa, and an effort to bring that story to light. Uh, Liberty McArthur will join us later this hour. Well, Eugene Peterson is a best-selling author. He's now 84 years old. He's decided to hang things up. He was in an interview with Religion News, and as many of you know by now, the theologian and writer is widely respected among Christian pastors and lay people. Um, he's best known for The Message, which is a contemporary paraphrase of the Christian scriptures that sold more than 16 million copies worldwide. He's been very influential uh, among leaders all across the country. Well, in this interview, he was asked about his view on same same-sex marriage and homosexuality, and his answers surprised and shocked many. Uh, he has since offered a, a statement following that religion news interview in which he's retracted his original thoughts. Um, but in the interim, my next guest responded, and I think rightly so, to uh, Eugene Peterson, who has uh, rightly adjusted his uh, response to that question, but raises some larger questions about what's happening in the evangelical church. Well, my guest is Owen Strand. He is... Um, Associate Professor of Christian Theology, Director of the Center for Public Theology. He's also a Senior Fellow of the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. He joins us today to talk about his response to the original article and then perhaps a response to this uh, more recent retraction. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it, Georgine. First of all, uh, let's talk about the original interview in Religion News in which uh, Eugene Peterson was asked what seemed like a straightforward question, but the answer, as I mentioned, surprised uh, many. He was asked by the interviewer um, uh, if he would um, engage in a same-sex marriage, if he would officiate a same-sex marriage if the opportunity arose. It was a hypothetical, but the answer surprised many. Yeah, he said yes. Just one word to it, according to the interview published on Religion News Service. And um, and that, frankly, that one word, it just shows you how powerful words are, because with that one word, Eugene Peterson shocked evangelicalism. Um, he's one of the most famous evangelical leaders in the last 30 or 50 years. And so for him to come out as a firm same-sex marriage, saying that he, a pastor, would perform such a, a service, a ceremony, um, took many of us um, by surprise and occasioned my response and several others. Now, as I mentioned, he has issued a... Uh 
uh, a revision to that that answer. In fact, is renounced his earlier answer. But let me invite you to respond to his original affirmation of homosexuality, because it's not while he has stepped back from what he said in answer to that hypothetical question. There are other evangelicals who uh, would agree with that position and uh, in numbers that are surprising. What was your response? Yeah, and yeah, excuse me. And that, that's really important, Georgine, and well said by you. Here's one quick thing to say before I get into the substance. His retraction uh, is indeed a retraction. So yes. he apparently does not affirm, um, you know, same-sex marriage anymore. And yet his retraction statement, the full statement, if you read it, shows that he has... Um, something of a different view on homosexuality than I think a lot of evangelicals do. In his retraction, he talks about, for example, still having um, homosexuals in his congregation and loving them as their pastor. It's not exactly clear to me where the lines are. He, he continues to itch, issue somewhat confusing statements, and so I'd want to hear more from him. But suffice it to say that um, the historic position of the, the Christian Church, working from the Bible, is that if you practice and affirm homosexuality as a positive behavior, you are to be placed under discipline if you're a member of a congregation, and if you are an unbeliever and you take this as your identity, you are in danger of eternal judgment from the hands of God. And so you, you think of a text like 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, through 11, and you recognize that Paul identifies homosexuality as a real temptation to the Corinthian church, uh, a church that lived in a context that was sexually compromised, much like ours. But Paul then said these explosive words in talking about those who committed homosexual sin and several other sin patterns as well. Such were some of you. Such were some of you. 1 Corinthians 6, uh, 11. That is so important for this conversation because it means that we cannot encourage people who endure in, in, a, in a gay orientation, and a gay lifestyle, and gay practice, uh, we, we have to call people who are in any way tempted to make homosexuality their identity or their behavior, we have to call them to repentance and faith in Christ. We have no other option based on the words of the Apostle. Uh, absolutely. Um, I know that some, uh, in fact, I, I had a friend that we, we had attended church for many years together, um, had held to Orthodox Christianity, and she announced that she no longer accepts the words of Paul as uh, as being uh, the gospel or being accurate, only the words of Jesus. And unless Jesus said something specific, everything else in Scripture was rejected. What do you say to those who have dismissed certain um, parts of Scripture uh, that do not affirm what they have decided is their identity? It's a sub-Christian understanding of the Bible. Um, I understand why people, you know, would reverence the words of Jesus and want them in red in their biblical edition. For example, we love the words of Jesus. Um, They are words of life to us. But there is not uh, a varsity and junior varsity team when it comes to the words of Scripture. All Scripture is God-breathed. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is profitable for rebuke, correction, teaching, training, and righteousness. This is the Bible speaking about the Bible. So Christians have long been tempted to have a kind of uh, different understanding of different texts, some being more authoritative than others, but that is not what the Bible itself says. That fills the Bible's own test. If, If Jesus had wanted his words alone to be authoritative for us, he would have given us only his words. But it it so happens that there are 37 books in the Old Testament that he wanted us to have, and then there are 29 books in the New Testament, which declares his authoritative word on all Scripture. 
and that's what Jesus wants us to have as well. So we, we are not privileged to pick and choose the parts of Scripture that we really listen to and those that we allow a consultant's voice, but, but not a definitive witness. Uh, it seems to me that the lesson of this most recent episode with Eugene Peterson, his original statement, and then ultimately the retraction that dis- does still leave some questions unanswered, is that we need to be very careful uh, about how we embrace fellow believers in terms of interpreting Scripture for us on these more controversial issues so that we remain um, committed to what the Bible says rather than what people we admire have to say uh, because they may not always get it right or may not always get it biblical. That's exactly right. Um, and the Church, frankly, just hasn't talked that all that much about sexual ethics, about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, what sexual behavior is okay, what isn't okay, when the reality is, Georgine, that the culture has been very, very, very happy to teach all of us what is right and wrong, and is enforcing, even now, uh, orthodoxy in the public square. Those who do not affirm, for example, all sexual acts committed by whatever orientation a person takes on are being profoundly punished. Uh, you can think of examples in your state of Oregon or Washington yes. or California or Missouri. Um, so there's all sorts of problems here. I would commend to your listeners Alliance Defending Freedom as a, as a resource, as an outlet in terms of legal protection. And I would say that our, our pastors have to teach biblically on these matters and form a Christian worldview in their people, because if they do not, they are leaving them defenseless before uh, a secularizing culture with a very strong uh, orthodoxy that it's pushing. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate so much your response in writing, and then you're taking the time to be with us here today. Thank you so much. Great to be with you. Again, uh, Owen Strand is a, an associate professor of Christian theology and the director of the Center for Public Theology. He's also a fellow with the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Up next, we'll talk with uh, Liberty McArter. We'll talk about a couple of subjects, so stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, as you may know, uh, the London High Court today resumed hearing the case on Charlie Gard and Liberty McCarter. We spoke with her uh, earlier this week on uh, this case and the fact that the judge there said if there is significant evidence presented, he's uh, prepared to change his mind. We're going to talk about what evidence was presented today and what's likely to happen next. We're also going to talk to her about uh, uh, an interview she had the opportunity to engage in with the founder of Culture of Life in Africa to discuss a project that really shines a very bright light on Western um, uh, abortion industry in Africa and how that's devastating women there. Well, as I mentioned, the uh, London High Court met today at uh, the Charlie Guard hearing. We understand that his parents at one point stormed out of that tense courtroom. They're fighting to take Charlie to the United States to receive nucleoside therapy. An American doctor called into the UK hearing. He provided testimony in support of that therapy. And the case that's captured the attention of many around the world has also uh, garnered support from the Pope, from President Trump, from a New York hospital, among others, uh, who want to see Charlie. Charlie Gard's parents given the opportunity to seek therapy for their son. Joining us to talk about that is Liberty McCarter. She is a columnist with The Stream. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Georgina. It's great to be here. Well, the judge said that if there's significant evidence uh, presented that uh, he'd be prepared to reconsider the decision to remove life support from this uh, 11-month-old baby. And you point out in your column that significant evidence was presented. Tell us what happened today. 
Uh, yeah, so uh, today they actually had a doctor from New York, the one who is wanting to treat Charlie with this therapy, uh, call in via video chat, and he said that he's been, he's had a chance to um, study this evidence. Now, he has actually uh, testified in previous hearings, um, and so that's why we don't have his name uh, for legal reasons, because he's been involved in this case for a long time, but he said uh, since the, the case was last at the high court in April, he has had a chance to review this data, you know, study and research even more, and he says a couple uh, really key things today. Um, one, there is, we're not exactly sure how much brain damage Charlie has. Um, you know, a lot of his doctors at the London Hospital, they've been saying it's irreversible, so treatment would be pointless. He says, well, until we go in there and treat, we actually really won't know how much it has or if it is reversible. Um, you know, maybe maybe it's not irreversible brain damage. Maybe he just needs a little bit of help in order for his brain to start functioning as it should. And he also says we don't know how much pain Charlie is in. So the argument that, oh, he's been suffering and the kind thing to do is to take him off life support now, that doesn't really hold up. He's not. Charlie isn't even exhibiting signs of really being in pain or suffering. And additionally, uh, there is there is more of a chance now than they previously knew that this treatment could actually work for Charlie. And so the judge did say. I mean, he's obviously as a judge, you know, very very skeptical and critical of all of the evidence that comes before him. But he did admit that this evidence today was significant. And so I think that's a positive step. Absolutely. Well, the Great Ormond Street Hospital, or GOSH, uh, as it's uh, referred to in London, is uh, insisting that Charlie has to be taken off life support to prevent more suffering. He also has a guardian that's appointed to uh, purportedly to act in his best interest, who's also arguing that he be taken off uh, life support. And I guess the premise is to prevent suffering, which, as you've stated and was uh, mentioned in the uh, hearing, it's not clear that Charlie is in discomfort or uh, or pain. Now, we're expecting a decision fairly soon, no sooner than um, Thursday, I'm, I understand. Right. You know, we don't know exactly when we will get a decision, but um, it's not going to be today, most likely. Uh, they're actually coming back to court tomorrow on Friday. Um, but as the judge does say, you know, no matter what happens, this delay is uh, not fair to Charlie, so they're going to try to make a decision as soon as possible. And um, one thing, uh, Catherine Glenn Foster, she's with Americans United for Life, and she's over there right now supporting Charlie's parents. She was in the courtroom, and she spoke with the stream. And one thing she told me is that, you know, his treatment um, that they want to try, just a three-month round of this treatment, it could have been completed twice by now in the mm. time that he's been in hearings. So this is something that Charlie could have received a long time ago, and if it does help, then he could be well on his way to, you know, a better life. Um, or, you know, we would know, we would have tried it and then known if it had worked or not. Yeah. But uh, So I think they're going to try to make this decision as soon as possible. She wrote in her, uh, uh, I guess it was a tweet, that the lead doctor advocating this therapy is not just a lone voice or fringe, but rather at the forefront of his particular field. So this is no, uh, uh, this is no doctor that's just speculating, but someone who's actually, this has been his focus. And so this really is a therapy that could have some real promise. Right. You know, this this is a leader in his field. Um, I think a lot of the, the media reports that you're seeing kind of portrays it as, well, 
the doctors at the Gosh Hospital, they're the experts, and that the consensus is that um, there's no hope for him. But not only do you have this U.S. doctor, you also have other doctors and researchers that joined him in signing a letter um, to the doctors at the U.K. hospital saying, look, there's more evidence now that this treatment might work. This treatment has been, um, you know, used on other people, not with the exact same condition as Charlie, uh, but you have had other patients with similar situations and similar therapies that have seen improvement. So this is uh, the cutting edge, um, you know, therapy for this this rare kind of condition that Charlie has. And so um, the, the consensus, you know, as far as these other doctors are concerned is that um, he ought to be able to try it. And so it's not it's not necessarily all the doctors against one lone voice. This is really a competing medical view. I know one of the um, arguments that's being made by those who claim to advocate for Charlie by suggesting it is better for him to be allowed to die uh, suggests that his quality of life, they've made a determination of what uh, constitutes a quality of life worth living. And that's one of the points that they, they're making in their uh, argument to remove uh, support from him and allow him to die. Right. And I think that's where you have to look at the implications and say, mm-hmm. okay, um, you know, what at what point are they going to say that somebody who has a mental illness, their quality of life is not you know, good enough for them to live, or somebody who has a slight brain damage, or or someone with another kind of disability, you know. Um, so his parents uh, and and the doctor that wants to treat him say, look, there's not evidence that he's in significant pain. We want to try to improve his life and make it better, mainly because they don't want to take him off life support and kill him when there is still hope for him. Uh, so that's the scary question is that a court can say, oh, I'm sorry, you have a bad quality of life because you might have brain damage and, and we're not going to try to treat you to make it better. Uh, that's the kind of decision we don't want the government to make for us. Yeah, yeah. I think it's also important to point out, and uh, Catherine Glenn Foster in one of her tweets points out that Charlie has already beaten the prognosis given to him and expectations. Um, so he has already proven himself to be extraordinary to have survived as uh, as well as he has up to this point. Mm-hmm, yeah, and and the, one of the things Connie, his mother, says is that Charlie is fighting for his life, um, and he is. And so, you know, that's something that you have to take into consideration, and and not just lightly. And you know, his parents are with him every day. His family is watching him grow. You know, yes, he is hooked up to a ventilator. But um, he's a fighter, and he's you know he's already beaten the odds. So um, the fact that they are they're just wanting to match his fight and say, look, Charlie's fighting. Um, he's made it this far. We want to give him a chance to to see if if he can improve even more. As you mentioned, the uh, the hearing will continue tomorrow. A decision is expected sooner rather than later, and we can only hope and pray that this judge will give uh, these parents an opportunity to give their son uh, access to this therapy that could improve uh, his condition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we are hoping that, you know, the decision will come down soon and it will be positive. Um, you do have U.S. legislators that are actually introducing um, a bill to see if they can make him a permanent U.S. resident. Now, I don't know if that will be successful or how far it will go, but there are other efforts around the world even still um, for uh, people uh, 
you know, sounding their support for Charlie and his parents and trying to do what they can to save him. So keep Charlie Gard and his parents in your prayers. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'd like to talk to you about a column you wrote yesterday uh, reflecting a uh, conversation, an interview you had with the founder of the Culture of Life Africa organization and a project that she's working on highlighting the West's dirty little secret. So we'll get into that in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, continuing my conversation with Liberty McCarter. She is a columnist with The Stream. She had an opportunity recently to talk with the founder of Culture of Life Africa to discuss her latest project. She's currently working on a documentary that exposes the Western-funded abortion industry in Africa. Women there are being exploited by West, uh, Western-funded family planning organizations, but nobody's talking about it. That is un- until now. Uh, uh, welcome back, uh, Liberty. Now, tell us a little bit about the founder of the Culture of Life Africa. Yes, Obia Nuju Ekiochen. She goes by Nuju for short. She is um, a biomedical scientist. Uh, she works at a hospital in the UK. She is um, a pro-life activist that has gone before the United Nations and, and other national leaders um, with you know advocating pro-life issues. And she founded Culture of Life Africa, as you said. And so this is somebody who has seen firsthand um, the damage that is being done to African women by well-funded organizations from the U.S. or the U.K. who come in, they offer these contraception, family planning, abortion, even in some African countries that where abortion is not legal, and then they leave the woman, um, you know, hurt, uh, suffering side effects that they don't have the resources to treat themselves, and pres- pushing this um, kind of abortion mindset on African women. And and one thing that Uju says is that Africa is a very pro-life continent. Most Mm -hmm. of the cultures in Africa, they don't even want abortion. But this is really, um, this whole abortion industry being pushed on Africa as it is, is is very disrespectful to the African culture. She makes the point that uh, networks like CNN and BBC report on what great work family planning initiatives are doing for women in Africa without actually talking to the women there. And she's uh, working on a documentary that would give uh, voice to the voiceless, those who are unheard and ignored. And uh, this project is designed to uh, shine a very bright light on the the implication, what happens at the other end of these well-funded Western um, uh, pro-abortion programs. Yeah, so what happened is that Uju, um, earlier this year, she went to Kenya and Ethiopia, um, and she's gone to other countries before, like Uganda, and, and but this, particularly this time she was in Kenya and Ethiopia, and she was talking to women about their experiences with different organizations, um, family planning organizations from the West. And um, she said their stories were so compelling, uh, the pain that they had suffered and the things that they had seen from these organizations were so shocking that Uju realized this needed to be made not just into another short video for her own organization, but a feature-length documentary. Um, and so that's what she is working on right now. She already has several of these interviews, and now she's working to raise money for production so that she can get these stories out there and expose some of these organizations um, and and hopefully lead to change in how they deal with these African countries. Yeah, and again, she makes the point that uh, a lot of the Western networks, they uh, they highlight what is a narrative that fits 
um, their own view of uh, these family planning organizations. She wants to show a side of Africa that's never covered by the usual international press and, and has access uh, to the women um, that she uh, is referencing to do just that. Right. You know, one of the things she talked about is that there are multi-million dollar uh, projects to give access to contraception to women in poorer countries, such as many countries in Africa. But she says the women that they are, you know, pushing these efforts on, the poor women, the rural women, they're the ones that suffer most. You know, um, it is, uh, some people might consider it a sensitive topic, but I think a lot of women understand that there can be lots of side effects from different uh, kinds of birth control. Well, you have these women over in Africa who are getting implants and hormones and, and all the kinds of uh, birth control and that they suffer um, debilitating side effects, but they don't have the resources to go to the doctor and get those side effects treated. Um, and then there's other places, like she's exposed previously in Uganda, uh, abortion is not even legal, but they set up clinics and they secretly do abortions in there. The women come in and they go out on the same day and their unborn babies are flushed down the toilet and they don't receive any follow-up care. And so, you know, that can be very harmful to women. And those are the kinds of things that are not being talked about um, because it doesn't fit in with the narrative that family planning is what these women need. It certainly is consistent, though, with uh, what uh, Margaret Sanger would have uh, promoted in in terms of trying to weed out the less desirables among uh, those on the planet. As an African-American, I find this very offensive. And I wonder, are there uh, African-American pro-life leaders in the U.S. or elsewhere around the world who um, are responding to this, or are people largely ignorant of what's happening? Um, I, unfortunately, I think that people are largely ignorant, and that's one reason it's so important to follow Uju and the work that she is doing, because uh, she is gaining a platform to speak before world leaders, and to um, just recently she had an interview with BBC, so to really highlight these issues. But um, you know, they they advertise it as you know women's rights, empowering women to take control of you know their reproductive health, but in the end, it's pushing a contraception and abortion on on poor nations. And, um, you know, this is not the first time we've seen this. I mean, uh, this earlier this year reported on how, um, you know, international uh, family planning organizations that the U.S. funded were actually supporting forced abortions in some of these countries and in places like China. And so uh, the women that are hurting are, are the kind of women that you would think we would want to help, but uh, we're just pushing family planning and abortion on them, and it's hurting them. Mm. You also make the point in the column, and I'm not sure if these, this is your comment or hers, but uh, abortion is seen by most Africans for what it really is, and that's an, a direct attack on human life. And so we're not talking about uh, areas of, of the continent that are uh, are in favor of abortion, um, but in fact it's being imposed on them. Right, and yeah, that is a quote from Uju, and you know, she obviously recognizes that there are many cultures, many different ethnic groups in Africa, but that a common thread that runs through, she says, is a respect for human life at every stage of development. This is partly linked to cultural beliefs and partly linked to religious beliefs, but a majority of people take it very seriously. And so when you have um, people in a nation or in an area saying, this is not, these are not our values, this is not what we want, we respect human life, and yet you have Western organizations that are well-funded, um, pushing it on them anyway, and then profiting from it and not following up to give the women the care that they need, uh, that's extremely disrespectful, and you would think 
that you know that's something that needs to be exposed um, because we're not valuing their voice um, and, and and their decisions about their values. Yeah, yeah. Now she's um, doing a GoFundMe campaign to uh, finance this documentary. If people are interested in more information, um, what's the best way for them to uh, to learn more about her efforts and to perhaps uh, help fund the project? Uh, well, I would say the best thing is to just Google her organization, Culture of Life Africa, and there is a link to her GoFundMe page there. Uh, she's trying to raise a total of $22,000 um, to produce this full-length documentary. And she's raised over 7000 so far, and uh, she is getting a lot of attention. A lot of you know, pro-life activists and pro-life leaders are getting behind her. So uh, it's definitely worth looking at Culture of Life Africa. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for writing about it. I, I was unaware of uh, this woman in particular and also um, a means by which we can have some influence in what's happening uh, abroad. So thank you for writing about it and for taking the time to talk with us here today. Well, thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it very much. Again, Liberty McArder is a uh, columnist for The Stream, and she's writing about the founder of the Culture of Life Africa organization. Uh, her latest project is to develop a docu- documentary. It really follows the production of a very short film that she made in which these same kinds of issues in Uganda were addressed. And it was so well received. And many of the women in that country said, finally, someone is speaking for us, um, that she determined that a much broader project was a, a good idea. And so she's covering a number of African countries. And again, Africa is a continent. It's not a country. And there are a variety of different groups there, the cultures and so on. But as was uh, mentioned uh, in our conversation and in the column, there is one common theme, that one common thread that runs through uh, much of the continent, and that is they see the value of, of human life and are opposed to uh, much of what's being imposed and sometimes forced upon them. Um, anyway, I appreciated um, the the column and hope you'll check out uh, the uh, the organization. Again, that's Culture of Life Africa. If you're interested in following up on that story, you can Google the name. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back to wrap things up. So stick around. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, once upon a time, Democrats pro-choicers wanted abortion to be safe, legal and rare. Today, that mantra is unregulated on demand and here in Oregon, free. Well, Oregon, as you know, is preparing to enact a law that would force all Oregon insurers to cover abortions, whatever the reason, at no cost to patients. House Bill 3391B compels insurers, public or private, to provide a whole swath of reproductive services free of cost and regardless of income, insurance type, citizenship status, gender identity. Because the bill prohibits insurers from shifting costs to customers in the form of higher deductibles or co-pays, private insurers are going to have to... um, eat the costs or more likely to distribute them among their customers through higher premiums. Medicaid, which, you know, Planned Parenthood, will receive an extra $10 million from the state to cover the procedures. Um, uh, both chambers of the state legislature uh, voted uh, for or against on party lines. The bill now awaits the governor's signature. Both California and New York, they mandate a certain degree of abortion coverage, but Oregon is especially aggressive. The legislative language is almost entirely unqualified. It doesn't exclude grisly late-term abortions, which take place long after the child can survive outside the womb, nor does it prohibit sex selection abortions. If a woman wants to kill her unborn daughter because she wants a son, her insurer has no choice but to cover it. Oregon may have one of the most liberal abortion regimes in the country. The state has no 
uh, informed consent laws, no waiting periods, no parental notification, requirements for uh, minors, and conducts virtually no supervision of abortion clinics. But even so, the bill is radical. Almost every state accepts the consensus represented by the Hyde Amendment, the budget rider attached to the federal spending that steers most taxpayer money away from funding abortion procedures. Namely, that abortion is a uniquely sensitive issue, and no one should have to be coerced into supporting it against his or her conscience. Oregon's bill is a middle finger to the longstanding consensus. Indeed, its exemption language makes that clear. In order to qualify for an exemption from the mandate, an employer must be a nonprofit whose purpose is the inculcation of religious values, and it must primarily employ and serve people who share the employer's religious tenets. That is obviously a standard that almost no religious employer meets. Oregon's uh, Democrats are apparently only interested in one type of evangelism. Well, needless to say, this mandate will almost certainly increase the number of abortions in Oregon. Liberal abortion laws correlate with higher abortion rates, and whenever something is free, there's more of it. But in the end, this mandate isn't just about Oregon. In 1994, voters here passed the nation's first measure approving physician-assisted suicide, which, after surviving several legal challenges, was implemented in 1997. Since then, five more states in the District of Columbia have legalized physician-assisted suicide. Oregon has a way of being at the leading edge of troubling trends involving life and death decisions, and this would be one more alarming precedent. Governor Brown, who's um, going to sign the bill, has called opposition to it. An attack on all Oregonians. Huh. Opposition to a bill that permits abortion for any reason at any time for free, which means taxpayers will cover it. In reality, of course, precisely the opposite is true. It's not an attack on all Oregonians. It's a support of those in utero who just might have a right to life. Just a thought in view of the exportation, if you will, of Western values on the continent of Africa. By the way, the United States is in the midst of uh, what some worry is a baby crisis. The number of women giving birth has uh, been declining for years and just hit an historic low. If the trend continues, the experts disagree on whether it will. The country could face economic and cultural turmoil. According to provisional 2016 population data that was released by the Center for Disease Control and Prevention on Friday, the number of births fell 1% from a year earlier, bringing the general fertility rate to 62.0%. Um, births per 1,000 women ages 15 to 44. The trend is being driven by a decline in birth rates for teens and 20-somethings. The birth rate for women in their 30s and 40s increased, but not enough to make up for the lowering numbers in their younger peers. A country's birth rate is among the most important measures of demographic health. The number of, uh, needs to be within a certain range called the replacement level to keep a population stable so that it neither grows nor shrinks. If uh, too low, there's a danger that it won't be able to replace the aging workforce and have enough tax revenue to keep the economy stable. Countries like France and Japan, and Japan rather, <clears throat> that have low birth rates, they put pro-family policies into place to try to encourage couples to have babies, not because they're pro life policies, but because they have other interests. Well, birth rates that are too high constrain resources such as clean water, food, shelter, and social services, at least they tell us. Problems faced by India, where the fertility rate has fallen over the past few decades, but still remains high. In any event, where we are promoting and um, propping up the practice of abortion, and particularly in the state of Oregon, we've got a, a fertility problem. Lord help us. Well, I'm looking forward to tomorrow. Tomorrow is Friday. Friday, we abandon our look at the more serious news, unless, of course, there's some breaking news that merits immediate attention. 
Otherwise, we'll talk about it on Monday. But on Friday, we take a look at the lighter side of the news. So we're looking forward to doing just that. And uh, we won't uh, mention, I'm guessing, through the entire two hours, we won't mention Russia. So we're looking forward to a Russia-free day. Collusion will not be a word you'll hear on Friday, nor will you hear about North Korea on Friday. So I hope you'll join us as we uh, take a look at the lighter side of the news and maybe do a little informing in the process as well. So that's uh, that's something to look forward to. Well, I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blend for engineering a portion of and producing all of today's program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. As we uh, close the program, I just want to encourage you and remind you that we can be among those who are praying for, longing for, uh, a great awakening among believers and perhaps a great revival all across the country. You can listen to my conversation with Pastor Greg Allen from earlier today when you go to kpdq.com, go to the Georgine Rice Show page, and you can uh, link to the uh, podcast to hear that conversation. Hey, have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.